Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Is the oil industry subsidized? That is the question of today's show, and that's a question that is circulating around Washington. Now, most people assume that it is. Uh, President Obama all the time talks about massive tax breaks for oil companies, closing loopholes, the oil industry getting special treatment, etc. Now, on previous episodes of the show, I've said more or less directly that I think that this is bogus, but we've never gone into the issue, and it's really, uh, it's a really important issue to go in. So I thought today we'd bring on an expert in the field, and this one's name is David Blackman. David Blackman is a managing director at the FTI FTI Consulting, which is a strategic communications firm which has a lot uh, of expertise in the field of energy, including in oil and gas. Uh, Now, Mr. Blackman has been in the oil and gas industry a long time before he worked for FTI, He was involved in Shell's exploration and uh, and production division, so he has a really extensive uh, background. So today we're going to be quizzing him about oil subsidies as well as some other topics he's been writing about uh, in his column at Forbes.com. So we'll be back on the other side with David Blackman discussing oil subsidies or lack thereof. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. All right, we are joined now by David Blackman, Managing Director at FTI Consulting. David, welcome to Power Hour. Uh, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Thank you. Um, so just looking at your bio, you have a really diverse uh, background in the industry. So I thought we'd talk about a couple topics today. One will be uh, oil subsidies, but I wanted to start off by talking about a recent article of yours in Forbes, which is called The Sue and Settle Racket. Can you describe a little bit what you mean? Because most people are not familiar with this phenomenon at all, and yet it is a very pheno- uh, important phenomenon in understanding development in this country. Yeah, it's uh, it's something that's been going on for about 20 years now, um, and it uh, involves a process whereby, you know, a, really it's mo- mostly taken advantage of by radical uh, left-wing, what I call anti-development groups. They're not really environmentalists. They're Groups that are uh, whose main goal is just to kind of stop human development as as much as they can, um, and and what happens is uh, specific to the Endangered Species Act, um, you have two two groups, Wild Earth Guardians and uh, the Center for Biological Diversity, who have really abused the process. They uh, their their strategy is to try to overwhelm the Fish and Wildlife Service by nominating dozens, if not hundreds, of plant and animal species to be listed um, simultaneously, knowing that there's no chance for the agency to meet its statutory time obligation to respond to all of these listings. You know, they have a certain number of days to respond, and when the agency is unable to respond, uh, they then file a lawsuit. Um, with a friendly federal judge, usually, and the judge orders a negotiation, and the groups uh, then meet with fish and wildlife uh, personnel um, behind closed doors, out of public view, uh, with no administrative process, uh, you know, going on, no uh, opportunity for the public to participate and comment. They they reach a settlement agreement, um, announce that to the world, uh, which is effectively you know, basically changes to the regulations under the Endangered Species Act. And, you know, there's been no opportunity for anyone else to participate. If that wasn't bad enough, most of the time, uh, the government then is forced by the judge uh, to reimburse the radical environmentalist group for their legal expenditures uh, in, in in the specific case. 
Um, and so, you know, the taxpayers end up putting the bill for this, what is really just a, an amazing abuse of the process under the, the Endangered Species Act. Well, let's step back and just talk about that act, because I think this is an act which is just viewed as, well, if you like animals, you must like this act. And yet, in the application of it, at least, we just seem to have many obvious violations of property rights. First of all, the owner, if someone declares you have an endangered species on your land or the land you want to buy, then you have no property rights. And uh, these so-called environmental groups, anti-development, I think is a better way of describing them, they are simply allowed to you know, be, in effect, an outlaw who gets to wreak havoc on any area of land in the country, despite having no you know, legitimate jurisdiction. Um, what is it in, in the law that makes this possible? Well, there's, you know, uh, the administrative process, the, the, the requirements for listing under the Act um, probably need to be tightened up somewhat. Uh, at this point, pretty much anyone can come in and nominate a species for listing under the Endangered Species Act without engaging in any real scientific research about the particular animal or plant that they're looking at. Um, and frankly, you know, the strategies of these two groups in particular is, is really uh, wrapped around identifying species that, that really are not, quote, endangered under any rational definition to, of, of that word that we're used to. Uh, they look for species of, of birds or animals or plants that uh, exist in abundance over wide geographic areas. Um, and, and, and the rationale for the listing is, uh, of course, the diminishing habitat uh, rationale that has been allowed by the courts. So that, for example, last year in Texas, we had a controversy about the, the dune sage rust lizard, which is all over the Permian Basin. There are thousands, if not millions, of these lizards over a very broad geographic area. Um, and, of course, the rationale is, well, every time you go out and drill an oil or natural gas well, you're taking one acre of land, you know, out of this species' habitat. Um, and, and so that's the rationale they use and has been allowed. And, and uh, you know, the state was able to convince um, Fish and Wildlife not to list the lizard, but uh, in order to do that, they had to uh, agree to manage a, a pretty restrictive management plan uh, around this lizard, and uh, you know, which is okay for one species when you're dealing with one plant or animal. But you know, there's I think 80 some odd species, plant and animal species, that uh, are in the queue for con to be considered for listing um, just in Texas alone. So um, if you end up having to deal with mitigations related to 15, 20, 30 species, pretty soon you don't have any time of the year when you can drill a, an oil or gas well. Well, to go back to your characterization as the anti-development movement, I mean, development inherently changes things. So if you develop yes. a piece of area, then the living things in it are not going to be in the same condition that they were. So by the logic of the Endangered Species Act, why should there be a Houston? Why should there be a Chicago? Why don't, you know, we just live as hunter-gatherers or not even uh, exist? Well, that's right. And, and, of course, you know, it's not the act itself that's the problem. It's, it's how the act and the, and the, uh, the court, the, the law, has developed around the act and the regulations have developed around the act in the 40-odd years since it was passed into law. The Endangered Species Act was a noble and good law when it was passed, designed to protect, you know, major species like the grizzly bear, the bald eagle, the whooping crane, you know, these, these animals that Americans were very concerned about and, and wanted to preserve, um, in, you know, as, as species. Uh, but, of course, like any law, uh, as the case law develops, you end up with, you know, a wide variance uh, when you look down the road, 40 years down the road, uh, as the law is applied today uh, versus its intended purpose when it was passed into law. And, 
And, and the reality is people think about this, and I tend to think about it in, in oil and gas terms because that's the industry I've been involved with for a long time. But, but this strategy is not just about the oil and gas industry. It is designed to, to stop highway improvements or new highway building, which you know, is going to have to happen in the state of Texas over the next 20, 30 years as our population is going to double. Um, it's designed to stop new housing developments, uh, shopping centers, you know, any kind of human activity that, you know, results in turning earth, basically disturbing dirt to <laughs> complete. That's what this strategy is targeting. And so it's, it's a real threat, not just to one industry, but really to our entire economy in the long run. I guess I'd push back on the necessity uh, of the act. I don't see why. I mean, insofar as different species are, I mean, it's precisely that some species you actually want to preserve, often for aesthetic reasons. Uh, yeah, you can do that. I don't see why you can't do that during property rights, but using property rights. But to but to say that species going out of existence is inherently bad. I mean, that's holding nature to a double standard because it's saying that the rest of nature is allowed to exterminate species, but that humans are not. Sure, sure. But yeah, and and that's all true. And and but I think that you know the population as a whole uh, in the late '60s and early '70s did become quite concerned about animals like the grizzly bear and the bald eagle, and that's really the terms that the average person thinks in when, when you talk about the Endangered Species Act. They're not thinking about the Texas blind salamander, for example, or the lesser prairie chicken or the sage grouse you know, in, the, in the western states, which is so abundant it has open hunting season on it you know, three months a year. Uh, they're thinking about these cute and cuddly animals that you know, the population at large wants to preserve and and the act has been, you know, in some isolated instances, successful in doing that. The bald eagle is a good example. Uh, the whooping crane, although it still is not an abundant species, when I was a kid uh, in the mid-60s, I remember actually going to the Aransas Wildlife Preserve and seeing the last 25 whooping cranes that existed on the face of the earth. Now there's like six or 700 of them, I think. So there has been some success in saving major species, but your point is actually a good one. You know, if you look out through history, something like 98 or 99% of all the species that have ever existed in the history of the earth are today extinct. So extinction is a part of nature and the thought that man can control that is, is really kind of uh, unrealistic. Yeah. Well, so it's interesting the parallel with this idea of anti-development movement because there's this often double standard of I mean, because every animal engages in development in a certain way i mean every animal changes its environment to meet its needs every animal competes uh in nature in fact in certain ways man is the only one that really can act benevolently to preserve others because he's fundamentally a creative animal rather than a, a predatory animal and yet when man develops, the so-called environmentalists say it's bad, and when others do it, it's fine. So if we kill a lion, we're evil, you know. But if a lion kills a lion or a cheetah kills a lion, um, that's good. So there's a really anti-human component where human beings seem to be discriminated against. Sure, and you know, I, I think when I think back on it, the, the most stark example of that dynamic that I can remember is after the uh, Exxon Valdez uh, oil spill in Alaska in the late 80s, uh, there is a famous film that you can still see on YouTube. Uh, a group had, you know, spent a lot of time trying to recover animals, and, and they had spent a lot of time with one particular otter, uh, cleaned him up, you know, uh, got him back in good health, and went out on a boat to release him into the wild, they released the otter into the wild. He goes swimming off, and about three seconds later, a killer whale comes up and swallows him whole. And, you know, everybody on the boat screams in, in horror as that happens, but that is nature. That is reality. And there's no way to penalize that killer whale for taking that otter, right? Um, 
So it's it's it is part of nature and and frankly I think the law really kind of needs to be at least the listing requirements in the law need to be amended to kind of be more reflective of nature's reality and the limitations of mankind's ability to save every plant and animal that's in danger of going extinct. It simply is not within our ability to manage. You mentioned uh, a pretty wide variety of species before that don't that don't fit the bill of a whooping crane or bald eagle. Can you tell us a story of, of one of those in terms of what kinds of important developments get restricted? Because I don't think this is a, a story many people know in terms of how difficult it is to develop because of all of these supposedly sacred species. Well, one of the most obvious that, if, that, that, that affects everybody uh, is highway projects. We, we have a, a famous example in Texas. Um, there's uh, Interstate 35 goes all the way north and south through the state of Texas, and there is a it splits into an east and western uh, route uh, about 90 miles south of Dallas and Fort Worth in a, in a little town called Hillsborough. And there is a highway project and improvement project that was delayed for many years. It was seven miles of, of I-35 south of Hillsborough that uh, the state government and federal government wanted to improve, uh, to improve drainage and, and raise the, the level of the highway uh, to make that happen. And the project originally it began in 1996. It was going to take less than a year to complete. That project was finally completed in 2009, I believe. 2009, 2010 was held up four or five times uh, under the Endangered Species Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act and, and a few you know, other major federal statutes, uh, forcing the developers to perform environmental impact studies related to migratory birds um, and, and other species that are supposedly threatened and endangered. Uh, the cost of this project quintupled, uh, bankrupted two different contractors. And, and, you know, I mean, it's just that kind of thing. You, you eventually got the highway improvement done, but what was the cost? And that cost, what people don't understand is that's not an isolated cost. The cost of these things reverberates throughout our society. And I really believe it's, it's pretty much impossible to do a, a, a really specific economic impact study specific to the Endangered Species Act just because it's so complex, but I really think if, if the average person on the street understood what protecting, you know, the Texas blind salamander or some obscure desert rat in California cost them at the grocery store every day, we, we'd probably have a revolution in this country. You know, people would be just so outraged they, they wouldn't be able to function. Um, but, but it's all hidden. You know, it's hidden from public view. The, the news media don't want to really report on this stuff because they, frankly, most news reporters agree with all this stuff. And, and so the average person on the street doesn't really understand the effect of any of this, uh, which is too bad. Well, when you talk about a revolution, that excites me. So what, what do you think are some steps that we can take toward just creating that level of awareness where when someone is stuck in, so I'm from Southern California, which as you probably know, has a lot of traffic issues. And when I'm stuck in traffic, the first thing I think about is how so-called environmentalists are probably a big culprit. Uh, but I don't think most people think of that. So I'm wondering your thoughts on, on how to have people make that connection. Well, you know, I just think that uh, people like you and me, um, need to keep telling these stories. We need to, um, you know, try to influence uh, other media outlets to do the same uh, for, by providing this information. You know, it's nothing you can force, I don't think. Um, but I, I think one of the problems you have is in terms of, of fixing any of it is politicians don't feel like, you know, uh, talking about making changes to the Endangered Species Act is, is almost 
as dangerous to one politically as talking about Social Security and Medicare. Um, you know, it's it's kind of a lightning rod and almost a, a fourth rail of politics. And um, you know, I don't I don't have a magic bullet. All I know is that the, as long as I have a platform to talk about these kinds of issues, I'm going to periodically talk about this one because it's you know, in my view, it's a threat to our entire way of life in the long run. Before we go into the oil subsidies issue, uh, let's talk about that platform. You have a, a column for uh, at Forbes.com, which people can get just by searching uh, David Blackman, and Blackman is black, and then M-O-N. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, FTI Consulting? FTI Consulting, uh, well, it's a it's a large consulting firm um, headquartered in New York City here in the United States. We have an international headquarters in London. We have uh, in the range of 4,000 employees in 30-odd different countries around the world, um, consulting in just almost all phases of the business universe. Um, I My specialty is strategic communications. Uh, here in the United States, and we focus on on energy clients, mostly in the oil and gas business. Um, and um, you know, it's a great company that does a lot of good work, wins a lot of awards um, for its work in, in a lot of different fields. I've been at the company for just a little less than a year. Prior to that, I was in the oil and gas industry uh, for 33 years. Prior to that. What aspect of the industry were you in primarily? Uh, I've always been in the exploration production side of the business. I spent one year back in the 1980s working for Tesoro Petroleum, which had some refining interests. But other than that, I've always been exploration production. Well, I mean, one of the that's a good segue into oil subsidies because that has a lot to do with exploration. And production. Also, let me set this up just as the conventional narrative, which is that the oil industry doesn't pay taxes, that they have these enormous subsidies, that if they didn't have these subsidies, that solar wind would be competitive. So that's there's kind of this mishmash of of accusations. Let, let's start though with the core thing, or the what I would say is the core misunderstanding, which is the idea that the oil companies get these subsidies or tax write-offs that are completely illegitimate and completely unnecessary. Uh, could you talk about what what people what even people are talking about and then what the validity is? Yeah, it, you know, it's a frustrating thing to, to those of us who, who deal with these public policy issues uh, because this particular debate is uh, for almost five years now, going on five years anyway, um, really been based on on completely false pretense that um, every tax treatment in the tax code related to the oil and gas industry is somehow a subsidy. Um, tax subsidies uh, happen uh, when the government actually pays you, writes you a check, whether you're an individual or a company, uh, to engage in a certain activity. Um, that's the kind of thing that happens with the wind industry. It's the kind of thing that happened with Solyndra, for example. Um, it's the kind of thing that's happened uh, to the tune of I don't know how many billions of dollars now through the DOE subsidization program in the Obama administration, um, much of which has led to bankruptcies and taxpayer losses. But it's not the kind of thing that happens with the oil and natural gas industry. Um, the fact is the oil and gas industry does not receive a single subsidy from the federal government uh, in any way, shape, or form. Although that's the reality, uh, the unfortunate truth is that um, uh, once President Obama assumed office in 2009, he basically had his staff um, search through the tax code for any tax provision that mentioned oil and gas and cobble them together into a single set of tax programs that he then immediately began proposing for repeal and has since then, that was about March of 2009, and ever since he has, whenever he's mentioned these tax programs, he's referred to them as subsidies for big oil. Um, 
so it's it's uh it's a very frustrating thing um just for the fact that we we, we just have a an issue here that is and, and unfortunately the news media just tend to take uh the administration's talking point and and, and repeat them in their news story so the public perception because of the way the issue is reported in the, in the mainstream news media um, is that the oil industry receives a lot of subsidies when in fact it does not. One of the specific subjects of accusation is what's called the depletion allowance. What, what is the depletion allowance and why don't you consider that a subsidy? Well, the depletion allowance is, is for the oil industry what a depreciation allowance is for pretty much any other industry. And, and, and these are this very standard part of generally accepted accounting principles uh, in U.S. business um, forever, frankly. It's called depletion rather than depreciation in the oil and gas and, by the way, any other mineral industry, including coal and uh, any other kind of mineral you can think of, even people who uh, sell dirt get a percentage depletion allowance. And basically, it's it's your allowance um, that allows you to take as a deduction a percentage of your main asset, which for oil and gas companies is the oil and gas that's in the ground. Um, and as you produce that asset, what's in the ground is reduced in value and in volume, and that's what they call depletion. So it's uh, for, for an appliance maker, um, they're allowed a depreciation deduction on their assets, which is refrigerators and dishwashers. And it's the same basic principle. It just has a different name where the oil and gas industry is concerned. So what, what is actually, just for those who aren't familiar with exactly what's going on, what, what exactly is happening with, you know, how, how is the depletion allowance uh, set and then what is how, how is the depletion working because I don't think people have a concrete picture of what's going on so so basically you know when you drill a, an oil well or a gas well <clears throat> you are required to report to the SEC that you've you've identified you've drilled a successful well and you believe that the ultimate recoveries from that well are going to be X thousand or X million barrels of oil whatever you think and by, and it's not just what you think, there's a very scientific means of, of uh, determining this. Uh, and so you, you begin with that initial estimate of ultimate recoveries and you are allowed to take as a deduction a certain percentage of that each year um, as, 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 a, uh, as a part of your tax return, just, just as uh, an appliance company takes a percentage of the value of his dishwasher inventory um, as a deduction on his tax return each year. And so, you know, over the years, as the well depletes, you, you continue to take that depletion allowance. And, you know, this has been in the tax code um, in one form or another since 1913. So uh, it's celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. So it's not a new thing. Uh, the other thing that's gone on in this debate is opponents of the industry have tended to try to characterize these tax treatments as something new. They're not anything new. Most of them ex have existed for decades, and percentage depletion and also deductibility of intangible drilling costs, uh, another of the one that gets a lot of dialogue, has also been in the tax code since 1913. So these things are not new, and they're not novel in any way. Well, since you raised intangible drilling costs, uh, what are those? So intangible drilling costs is basically the cost of drilling an oil and gas well. You, you, know, you bring a rig out uh, onto your location, and you start drilling. And, and the cost of the time you begin, begin to drill until you have drilled to your total depth is what is referred to as intangible drilling costs. Um, for any other business, it's, it's, it's very similar to any other manufacturing industry's cost of goods sold. This is what it costs you 
to identify that oil and gas in the ground and begin to produce it. And once you've completed the well and begun producing it, that is production costs. But the cost of actually drilling the hole in the ground and completing the well and putting your equipment on top of it necessary to produce the oil and gas, that's your intangible drilling cost. What exactly is the intangible part? Uh, you know, that's a good question. Uh, back in 1913, when, when frankly, all this came about at the same time as the personal income tax when, in, during the Woodrow Wilson administration, um, that was why they, uh, that was the name they chose for it. It's been the name they've used ever since. The same thing with depletion. Um, I really honestly can't tell you why they chose that particular uh, nomenclature for that particular uh, uh, feature in the tax code. But, and, and frankly, the fact that it has a different name for the oil and gas industry than it does for other industries is part of, part of the ammunition that's, that's uh, been used by the other side because it enables them to say, well, this is different. You know, this is not cost of goods sold. This is different. It's intangible drilling costs. When, in fact, it's exactly the same accounting principle. Um, and, it, again, it's, it's something that's just not a novel concept. It's, it's something that's been there for a century. And, frankly, when you start talking about these things to a group of oil men, they, they just all wonder why in the world we're even talking about this. It's just something that's been a part of the world for a long, long time. Just one more question about the phenomenon of depreciation. Let's just say uh, my organization, Center for Industrial Progress, we purchase, you know, we build a new office building, and let's say it has an expected lifetime uh, of 100 years, and it's, it's a very resilient building. Now, that's going to depreciate fairly slowly, it seems. But with an oil well, it seems like that uh, you know, once you go to all the expense of setting it up and drilling it, it seems like that would be hard. Like the office building I could sell, right, for almost as much as I bought it for. Sure. It, it seems like it would be harder. Uh, it's, it seems like it would be harder to monetize the oil well once you've gone to all the work. Although, is there any legitimacy to that or is it a similar thing? Well, it's a similar thing, um, and, and oil wells do get sold um, as they go through their life. Uh, not all of them, but, but many do uh, as they, you know, as their production tapers off. Say you have a, a big field out, you know, in, te in Texas somewhere that one of the majors drills initially, and it, it has a very high production rate, very low maintenance administrative costs. Uh, then the big company may, 10 years down the road, as, as production begins to decline and administrative costs begin to rise, they may say, well, you know, we're going to try to sell this property. And, and what typically happens is it gets sold to a smaller operator who's used to, to dealing with lower margin properties, um, may come and buy that property and, and operate it for, you know, stimulate the production somehow and, and operate it for another 10 to 20 years. Uh, so they do get sold. Um, with an office building, you're, you're going to be able to depreciate that asset entirely within a certain number of years, typically 15 years, uh, and recover that cost, that capital cost that way in, in your tax returns. It, it works differently with, with percentage depletion. It depends on the expected life of the well and what the total expected recovery is, so it's kind of a variable thing. Um, with intangible drilling costs, you know, the question there in the tax code right now, you can either deduct those costs in the year in which they're incurred or you can capitalize them over a five-year period. Um, and Congress put that provision in place, um, and now I'm forgetting when, but it, it was several decades ago, um, you know, just as a means uh, when... I think it was actually during the 70s when we were going through the oil shocks and, and the federal government was looking for ways to enhance domestic production. They began to allow the deduction of these intangible drilling costs in, in the year they're incurred as a means for companies to raise new capital to drill more wells. You know, they were trying to enhance domestic production. And so, you know, that that 
feature of the tax code has a good reason for existing. And and frankly, you know, the tax code is full of those kinds of provisions, uh, not just related to the oil and gas industry, but other industries, you know, where Congress has thought it desirable, um, you know, as a public policy matter for something to happen. And, for example, they began allowing you to deduct your mortgage interest uh, back in the 40s or 50s from your, your individual tax code because they wanted to encourage people to buy homes rather than rent. And um, so, you know, um, again, it's it's a feature of the tax code that's, you know, not unusual, not a novel concept, and not really unique to the oil and gas industry. Yeah, although is the mortgage reduction really the best example? Because that, that seems really unfair to me to favor one form of uh, domicile over another. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not commenting on the fairness of it, but I think it's just been a very common thing for Congress to periodically, you know, say, you know, we want people to own more homes, okay? And so that's what they chose to do in order to encourage home ownership. You know, frankly, as as an accountant, I think the the mortgage interest deduction is pretty overrated as as a reason to buy a home, Um I, you know, most people really don't come out very much ahead buying a house rather than renting, but that's another subject. But be that as it may, it was just one of those things Congress decided to do at that time. Uh, there's a couple of tax credits uh, related to the oil and gas industry that are a good example of, of Congress putting in place a program in order to encourage a specific behavior. In the late 80s, when, when the oil and gas industry was very depressed in this country, um, you know, it became apparent that a lot of oil fields that weren't fully depleted were being abandoned because they just weren't profitable. It wasn't profitable to produce these very, you know, less than 10 barrel a day wells, you know, when the price of oil was 10 or $15 a barrel. So in 1990, they in, enacted this enhanced oil recovery credit, and then Four years later, during the Clinton administration, they, they enacted another credit called the Marginal Well Credit. Both were designed to help small producers who typically become the owners of these fields as they deplete fully uh, to go back in to these fields, you know, perform some minor stimulation on the wells, and continue to produce these very marginal fields because. You know, an individual field might not have that much oil in it, but as taken together, uh, what Congress came to understand is that the country was losing out on billions and billions of potential barrels of oil production that, you know, could help reduce foreign imports. So, again, it's not a comment on whether or not that was a good policy, and, and you know, from any political aspect or point of view, but... It just was one of those things, again, that Congress chose to do related to the oil and gas industry. That is a very common thing for Congress to do with the tax code. It's basically, frankly, it's been Congress's way of, of dealing with energy policy uh, to a great extent over the years. So to be concrete in terms of what we face what would happen if the Obama administration got its entire wish list, or at least publicly declared wish list, with regard to taxation of the oil industry? Well, um, you would see, I think you would certainly see, certainly in the short run, uh, a pretty dramatic reduction in the drilling of wells because, you know, what what he's talking about doing is is repealing every tax treatment in the tax code specific to the oil and gas industry. And and oil and gas companies are no different than companies in any other industry. They they become acclimated to a certain uh, environment in the tax code, a certain set of tax provisions they have to deal with, and they form their business practices around that those tax provisions, and they form their there are procedures for raising capital around those tax treatments. And so if you all of a sudden had this radical change 
to the tax code, it would become extremely disrupted in these companies' ability to farm capital to drill additional wells, just at a time when we as a country are really on the verge within a decade at most of becoming pretty much energy independent, at least in North America, from imports of, of oil from anywhere other than North America. And what the administration is talking about is, at this moment in time, you know, enacting this radical change to the tax code. And I think it's, it's would unquestionably would result in a very dramatic decrease in the number of wells drilled, a dramatic increase of imports of foreign oil, um, and pretty dramatic increase in energy prices in general. Is there any, are there any dollar estimates on the amount of additional taxation that these Obama administration policies would be causing? The latest number I've seen them throwing around is $40 billion over five years, um, which doesn't sound like a lot of money um, in the context of an entire industry. Um, and frankly, it's not so much the money as just the disruption in the business practices. It, it it just becomes such a radical change at a single point in time that it would definitely, without question, take companies a while. It's not just the companies who would have to change their business practices. What we also have to understand is that the banks who lend money to finance drilling projects also have formed all of their business practices around this certain set of tax provisions. And if you just willy-nilly throw them all out at a single time, I think that the effect would be incredibly dramatic, and so does you know, any other analyst who takes a close look at this. Um, I know that the American Exploration and Production Council uh, had its members assess what they thought would be the reduction in their drilling over the first couple of years should this happen, and, and I think what I was told, the average uh, estimate that came back was about a 28% reduction in drilling budgets in the first year. Well, 28% reduction in one year is a big, big impact on the American economy. And it would mean a lot of lost jobs. Uh, it would mean higher electricity costs uh, to the public because you would, in very short order, create a shortage of natural gas on the market if you weren't drilling new wells. Uh, and natural gas provides uh, something around 40% of all the electric power generation in the country. So it just would have an impact that would reverberate throughout the economy and, and be a very negative thing uh, economically for the country. I forgot to ask this before. How much in taxes does the oil industry already pay? Well, uh, you know, I'm not sure what the aggregate number is. I, you know, I know ExxonMobil, for example, was the largest tax-paying entity in the country last year and has been for many years. Um, in fact, the two largest tax-paying corporations in the United States for 2012 were ExxonMobil and Chevron. Uh, ConocoPhillips was also in the top five. Um, and I believe ExxonMobil's number was something around $25 billion. That's one company. Um, and just you know, their corporate income tax. Uh, it doesn't include sales taxes and all the state severance taxes that you pay um, as an industry. Um, uh, our impact on, on state economies is, is enormous in, in states like Texas and Louisiana, Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, uh, really uh, in a broad, really more than, I think, 30 states now are pretty significant oil and gas producers. So, um, it's a pretty dramatic effect on, on all of these economies. It's really remarkable that you might ask an average person, and they, they could very well say, the oil industry doesn't pay taxes. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure where that comes from. I, you know, in Texas, you know, where I'm most familiar with, you know, you can just go right down the line. We pay sales taxes on every piece of equipment we buy, every drill bit that we use costs as much as a Lexus sedan, you know, $70,000, $80,000 just for the drill bits, not, not including the pipe and all the other equipment that you use. Um, when you 
complete your well and start producing the oil and gas, uh, the local taxing districts, the counties, the hospital districts, schools, uh, community college districts all get to uh, levy property taxes on the value of the oil and gas that's in the ground before it's produced. As you produce it, you pay a severance tax on every barrel of oil or 1,000 cubic feet of natural gas that you produce. Um, and then there's the, uh, the state's margins tax, which is its version of a corporate income tax that uh, these companies also pay. So um, your tax, really, the truth is that uh, the Texas, in Texas anyway, the oil and gas industry is far and away the most heavily taxed industry in the state. Um, and, you know, that's not really a complaint. Frankly, Texas is a great state to do business in, even for the oil and gas industry. But when you look at the, uh, the amount of taxes paid per employee uh, is one way of looking at it. It's pretty much three times the average of other industries in the state. So, yeah, the, the, the oil and gas companies pay a lot of taxes. And uh, everything that I just went through there doesn't even include your federal income tax that you pay. All right, well, we're wrapping up here, but since you're in strategic communications and, and work for a major uh, firm, just any final thoughts on what the most important issues are in energy today that listeners should pay attention to, besides the ones we've discussed? Yeah, well, you know, the ones we've discussed, I would say, are the, most, the two uh, most compelling right now, but uh, when you look at it, there, there's also uh, EPA efforts uh, you know, regulatory efforts around uh, air and water. Um, I think you've seen in, the, in this administration an enormous impact in the power generation sector uh, from EPA regulations, particularly clean air reg regulations, uh, that are resulting in uh, the shuttering of uh, a lot of uh, megawatts of power plants that are fired by coal. In particular, a lot of those are being converted to natural gas. Um, some are being converted to solar and wind, although that's not really scalable. Um, you really have to almost have natural gas or nuclear come in um, as a substitute for that. Um, you know, so it's re it really all centers around the EPA and um, and and the you know the Endangered Species Act and taxes. Those are those are the the big issues that the industry faces every day. And um, you know, the government, in some instances, does a good job of of trying to manage things and and make these regulations low impact where possible. But other times, there's there's obviously a p political agenda at play, and uh, you know, there's no effort. Uh, to to reduce their impact, and so you end up with with these really big big uh, uh, numbers of, of power plants having to either be rebuilt or or just shut down, and uh, that of course affects people's pocketbooks, whether they realize it or not. Great. Uh, where can listeners learn more about your work? Well, I do. I am a contributor at Forbes. dot com. Uh, have uh, a blog there. It's like you said earlier. They can just Google my name, and it'll come right up. And uh, that's the main place uh, you can read my work. I'm also a contributor at uh, EnergyInDepth.com. That's Energy N I N Depth D E P T H dot com, uh, which has a ton of really great information uh, related to the oil and gas industry on it. And um, that's the main place you can keep up with me. Yeah, definitely, everyone. Check out energyindepth.com. Uh, David, thanks for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks again to David Blackman for coming on the program. Uh, I think we got a lot of clarity in terms of how the industry is not subsidized and yet how certain things uh, that are, you know, very legitimate parts of the tax code to make sure the oil industry is not illegitimately penalized are, are caricatured or, or mischaracterized as as subsidies. So that's that's one of the big takeaways for me. Uh, now, as far as broader uh, power related stuff at CIP, there's a lot. So I just want to name a couple things. Uh, first of all, we've got a course 
directed primarily at people in the oil industry called The Story of Oil and How to Tell It. That starts next Wednesday, uh, which is either June 12th or June 13th. I'm not uh, looking at a calendar right now, but you can. It's it's one of the two. And you can you can learn more about that at industrialprogress.com slash course, industrialprogress.com slash course. I'm really uh, excited about that. Lots of lots of really interesting communications people in the industry have already signed up for that. Um, and for me, one of the most exciting things we've ever done, we just released uh, an open letter about this fossil fuel divestment movement that we've discussed on the show a bit, uh, an open letter signed by many, many prominent academics and, and uh, you know, initiated by CIP, particularly me and uh, Adam Edmondson. We, we wrote the letter, and but we we're really blown away by how many people expressed interest in signing it. And it's a letter that challenges the divestment movement, uh, both on the grounds of its antipathy toward fossil fuels uh, but also its unwillingness to debate the issue and its desire to instead institutionalize its position dogmatically by having its, by having the universities take a public stand. So check that out at industrialprogress.com slash open letter and uh, make sure to, if you happen to be uh, an expert in the field, you'll see there's a chance to, to add your name to the list. There are many dozens already and we hope to get hundreds and perhaps eventually even thousands. Uh, but anyone can sign up for our mailing list, and we're going to have all sorts of activist activities, especially as the school year approaches. This is primarily a university, something that's happening in the university setting, but there will be ways for, for everyone to get uh, involved. So make sure to put your own name there, share it with people, uh, and you'll see in the coming weeks, but even really in the next week, we're going to promote it a lot, and I think it's really important that people know that there is a very, very different position on fossil fuels and that this divestment movement, which is in many ways a fringe movement, certainly a fringe to American values or, or worse than that, antithetical to American values, it's, it's important for people to know that there's a proud movement on the other side, and that's why we often labor, label ourselves as I love fossil fuels, and so you'll see more of that. We have new T-shirts, by the way. You can you can see that at industrialprogress.com/store. Oh yeah, and and the book is now out in paperback. Uh, we just uh, we have a very large batch coming in, so make sure to check that out at industrialprogress.com/book. So as I said, lots and lots of stuff going on at CIP. Uh, so make sure to keep listening to Power Hour for more, but also go to the website. Make sure you're on the newsletter and uh, keep up. That'll be it for this week. As, as always, questions, comments, love mail, hate mail, go to alex at industrialprogress.net. Next time, we'll be back with another great topic, another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.